This is a HeadGum Podcast. Andrew, this week's episode is brought to you in part by Squarespace, uh, part of the internet that helps you make more internet. Andrew, what's your favorite part of the internet? Ooh, probably the parts where uh, random people can't talk back to me about anything. <laughs> yeah, so you could make a website with Squarespace using their beautiful templates created by world-class designers where no one could talk back to you. They could just <laughs> look at your cool designs, look at your cool products, uh, browse all of the cool episodes of your podcast, and they've got free and secure hosting and nothing to patch or upgrade ever, plus 24-7 customer support if you have any issues. Andrew, if you want to add to your favorite part of the internet you can go to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial and when you're ready to launch use the offer code overdue to save 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or a domain squarespace make the internet better with your ideas Gambier, what's up? Uh, I'm Craig. I'm Andrew. I'm Margaret. I'm Catherine. And this is two different shows at the same time. It's a crossover event. It's uh, never been deal. done before. No one, no one has ever done this before. Science uh, didn't know if it was possible. Yeah. <laughs> Eat your we'll, heart out, Marvel. We'll find out if it is possible yeah. by the end. Um, so, yes, thank you for these lovely introductions and for having us here. Um, we are going to apparently debate books versus television, novels versus television. Yeah, novels. I, like when, I know. When you're I, I can only they're hear novels. Them. Yes. Um, and who better to do it than a book podcast and a TV podcast? Um, so, we are going to center our discussion today on one text uh, just for, you know, why not uh, give us something all to work with. So we are going to be talking about Nick Hornby's High Fidelity um, as well as the Hulu adaptation of the show. The movie exists. I'm sure you've heard of it. (laughs) John Cusack? Jack Jack Black? Black? Yeah. Joan Cusack? Scandalous. Wow, this yeah. movie sounds really great. <laughs> <laughs> Zoe Kravitz's mom. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, Lisa Bonet. So if you've never listened to uh, Overdue before, um, the main rule of the show is that one of us reads the book um, and then talks about it with the other co-host, having never read it before. Um, so I, I read... Uh, high fidelity for today having never read it before um is there like a cons- are we following any of atv's rules i by the end we will okay. i mean uh, some of us have watched all of it others have only watched some of it so yes the yeah, inversion yes. is yeah. that i've watched all of it andrew has only watched some of no, it i watched all of it oh then we've all just watched all of it so we're breaking all of atv's rules <laughs> is the answer so this is going swimmingly <laughs> um so show of hands who knows high fidelity Great. Okay. Right, good. We're working cool. with some great, knowledge great. here. Um, yeah. So cool. So just to get like a working sense of the story, we want to like know what the book is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we do. Uh, Margaret, you told me that I should do a summary of the book as quickly as possible. Yeah. And then I left the phone I could have done a countdown I with. Got it. Yeah, great. I knew you would be on it, Andrew. 
Three minutes? Three minutes. Okay, we have perfect. three minutes on the clock. Tell me when you're ready. I for might, a plot summary. Oh, I might be able to do it in less than three. We'll All see. Right, well, Let's do okay. it. Um, Let's see. Go. So, there's a guy named Rob, and he talks to the reader the whole time. It's his perspective. He's kind of a loser, and he knows it. <laughs> um, he's British. Uh, Northern London, I think. Um, and he opens the book by going through his top five Desert Island breakups of all time. More on that later. Um, he's been broken up with at least five times. That's how he knows he's a loser. Um, it builds to the fact that his current love, Laura, um, the same name as my wife, so it's weird to read this book, um, uh, has just decided to leave him ultimately for the neighbor upstairs who Rob thinks is a jerk. Um, Rob finds out um, and he thinks that this kind of sucks. Uh, Rob also works at a somewhat failing record store with two dudes named Barry and Dick um, called Championship Vinyl. Uh, Barry is like the top five master. He sums up all of his ideas in these top five lists. How am I doing on time? You're uh, crushing yeah, it. Less than yeah. Or two minutes left. Okay, great. Thank yeah. you. Um, I needed that. I was going to burn time. They're great. Um, <laughs> so uh, Barry is kind of a jerk, and he like when he sells records to people, they like ask for a record. He's like, that one's terrible. You should buy this one instead. That's his whole deal. Except he's British. So that one's terrible. No, you should do, do this one instead. Don't do it. Don't do it. Go back. <laughs> uh, Dick is like the sweet one, um, and he's just a nice guy to hang around. Um, he gets a girlfriend later in the book, um, and Barry's mean to, hi to him about it. Um <laughs> Uh, later, Laura maybe breaks up with Ian. There's like, oh, 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 here's what it is. Ooh. Um, uh, Rob is distressed by the, his breakup with Laura, so he embarks on a plan to revisit and unpack all of his previous breakups. Um, it's a mix of fact-finding fact and inflicting damage on other people to make himself feel better. Um, he does have a sort of a relationship with an American musician named Marie. She seems rad. Uh, and She's he, the one played by Lisa Bonet in the movie. Thank you, Margaret. Anytime. We said there'd be interruptions. He has a bad-ish relationship with his parents, mostly that he doesn't really pay attention to them and he doesn't know how to fit himself into, into their lives. He's a real selfish jerk. Yes. <laughs> um, and then the two big events with his uh, on-again, off-again girlfriend, Laura, um, will they get back together? There's like a chance maybe in the book, a 9% chance. Um, and then her dad's uh, funeral later in the book where they like reconnect over this big event. He goes and then freaks out because he has this real big, big bad fear of mortality. Um, and then she leaves too because she has the same thing. And then they get back together and she's like challenging him to be a better version of himself, but he's still that kind of slacker loser guy. You and he's have not. 35 seconds. Okay. And, and now that I've interrupted you, you have 30 seconds. Okay. Um, and he's not sure if he uh, can toss off this mantra that he's been living by, which is it's not um, how you, uh, what is it? It's not the way you it's are. Not, it's it's, not, the, it's what not what you what like. you're like. It's what you like. It's what you like. It's not what you're like. It's what you like. And that's that how really he matters. starts the book. Um, and then the book is really just his journey to the other version of that sentence, which is it's not what you like. It's what you are like. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Oh, wow. Whoa. Um, so I'm sure I left a whole bunch of stuff out. So if you love the movie, then you're like, what about that scene where they... Yeah. And I'm probably going to talk about that later. <laughs> but I want to yeah. make sure that we all had a working uh, knowledge of the plot. And I usually on our show take a lot longer than that. Um, but we have other stuff to talk about. So call me. How many seconds do I have left? You you're you're were, done. You, yeah. You're over. You ran out of time. You went over, bud. seconds ago. But like barely over... And we were trolling you the whole time. Yeah, so, so I think you're good. I think you crushed it. Crushed it. Thanks, guys. You should yeah. be very proud of yourself yeah. right now. Extremely proud. You should feel <laughs> like you just sold a copy of Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan to someone who, who didn't have it in their vinyl collection and desperately needed it. Yeah. Thanks, Margaret. That's all I needed to hear today. You're welcome, um, babe. So that we know where this book came from, 
Andrew. Yes. You want to tell us about our author, Mr. Hornby? Oh, you mean Nicholas Peter John Hornby? One in the same. I would love to tell Peter you about Peter John. Him. So many names. Yeah, how many first names does the guy need? Too right? many. Wow. Five first names. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he is best known for books like High Fidelity, also about a boy, uh, which both became successful movies in like the mm-hmm. early 2000s. Um, he published his first books. Uh, one was an essay collection, and then another was a like a sports memoir called Fever Pitch uh, in 1992. Also a movie. Yeah, also two, actually two, two movies. movies. Yeah. yeah, one starring uh, Jimmy Fallon. And the other starring Colin Firth. <laughs> two guys. And, Both um, brunettes. <laughs> the, uh, the novel High Fidelity was published in 1995, and it's been adapted into, I think, every other kind of art that exists. <laughs> Um, Craig downloaded the musical and I was going to talk about the musical. Yeah, on so, the drive, it was uh, so bad. Best known as a movie in 2000, but it was uh, the music is really bad. It was adapted into a Broadway musical in 2006. It ran in Boston for one month, and then there were 18 previews, and then 14 performances, and then it was Ooh. over forever. <laughs> Uh, and in the biz, Craig tells me that that is not a lot of, that's not very good. Oh. <laughs> Coming from the theater world, we call that one a stinker. Uh, the New York Times Review charitably described it as one of the all-time most forgettable musicals. <laughs> wow. Uh, and then, yeah, the TV series in 2020, which is a gender-flipped uh, adaptation. Ge- and where, race bend. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, He's also done some screenwriting. Did you know that? Yeah, he's done some screenwriting. He's done some music criticism, and he's done some charity work. Um, he's helped start one called uh, Ambitious About Autism because he's got a son who's on the spectrum, and he wanted to help those kids out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Ministry of Stories, which is a charity that encourages students to develop writing skills and, and to enjoy writing for pleasure. Which, sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Um, anything else about the book? From You guys have read the book. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yep. I read it many, 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 many years ago. And I think one of the things we're going to talk about over the next several minutes is what it feels like to watch and consume something that you consumed a long time ago and you had one reaction to it. And this time you were like, wow, I was wrong the last time. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely, <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a big part of what we talked about. But yeah, no, I loved this movie. Movie and I was book. particularly, yeah. yeah. And I watched the movie when I was 18 or 19 and I yeah. really related to the, the broken up with protagonist. <laughs> and then I watched it now and I was like, wow, this show takes a really dim view of parenthood <laughs> and it really bothers me. Now. Look at that, that's... Sunrise, sunset, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I had never, I have never seen the movie. I've never seen the musical. I've ne- I this is my first time reading the book, and I've never, I saw the first two episodes of the show. So that's where I'm at. We're all welcome here in this big tent of yes. high fidelity experience. Where yes. we've consumed a varying amount of high fidelity. <laughs> <laughs> Low fidelity, middle fidelity. Hey. I, I listened to the book on audiobook this week to refresh my memory, and I was. Surprised. How are audiobooks these days? They're terrific. Great, this good one, to know. This one really goes heavy on the British accents and in, in, in a very right, sort of right, yeah. Mm, I, that was not an invitation. <laughs> There's room here in the big tent, Margaret. Oh boy, not for that energy. I don't know what that was. <laughs> uh, this is Poor again a, a wonderful example of the the drama major at Kenyon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, I didn't this take a single class in dialects. <laughs> What were you saying earlier? Somebody said that your acting was fine, but that you, you should really think about directing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was a compliment. Yeah. Um, I would just, I would direct yourself to attempt fewer accents. But yeah, went real hard on the accents, not necessarily in a good way, I'd say. Hmm. Like you. 
So moving on, <laughs> um, Margaret suggested that one way for us to kind of get into the spirit of the story. One thing I left out of my like super fast uh, recap is that um, Rob, Rob takes on this uh, practice of top five stuff. He likes to list things. He likes to, um, and it's everything from his favorite things to his least favorite things to various experiences to, of course, uh, his breakups. And in a couple, like he lists terrible things he's done to people in relationships. Um, Margaret, you had an idea that we might, uh, to open our conversation on Rob, list our top five toxic men we've tragically identified with. <laughs> that is exactly what I suggested very yeah. strongly. And I suggested it so strongly that I get to both open this segment and close it. <laughs> we are going to do a collective top five. And I'm going to start with a controversial pick. Mm. This is going to be tough for some of you in the audience here. And I just need you to stay with me in this moment. But the number one toxic man that I have tragically identified with is George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> I know. You're out there in the audience. You're like, what, the, the kind-hearted banker who, who saves his whole town with his generous spirit? Yes. You people <laughs> are forgetting the first hour of that movie where he's a huge jerk to everyone in his life because he's sad and he's also a man and no one ever taught him that there were other ways to express sadness than rage. Um, and it is a really, really profound story about somebody who feels incredibly trapped by circumstances and is incapable of seeing the beauty and grace in the choices that he's making for himself and the deliberate world he's built for himself because so many of the choices he expected to make were taken away from him. And I relate to him a lot, and that is why I cry at the movie, but the man is toxic. Doesn't make it any. <laughs> he gets better by the end. You know, the angel does the right thing. He gets his rings, wings for a reason. Yeah. But still. Yeah, sure. Number Andrew? Oh, Andrew. Oh. Yeah, go okay. for it. Um, I am going to go with the music theme. Oh, yes. Hmm. Uh, because of High Fidelity, which is about music, among other things. I want to talk about John Lennon, who <laughs> might still be my favorite Beatle musically, but also... Maybe your least favorite Beatle personally. Like, abandoned multiple wives and children over the course of his 40-year uh, life. Yeah. Um, and, and, and emotionally and maybe physically abused them. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, like his, his music was was and is like really important to me and emotionally resonant. And he like did songs about his like mother that are really devastating and gorgeous. And yet he was really awful to so many of the women in his life for so long. I think by the end he was he had sort of gotten on a better path. But sure, yeah, it's 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 tough to think about. Yeah, yeah, all right. Number three. Number three. Um, so for me, the the toxic man that I, I most relate to is probably all male Aaron Sorkin characters. <laughs> and thus probably Aaron Sorkin himself. Oh. Yeah, the root. Yeah. Um, there's a, there is a dynamic that happens in most Sorkin shows where a male figure at the center of the story is very right about everything mm -hmm. and uses the people around him, mostly women, as 
props so that he can cudgel them with his intelligence <laughs> and prove his rightness all of the time. Mm -hmm. This is particularly true by the most recent of Sorkin's TV shows, The Newsroom. Um, is that really the and it, oh. and is A the resounding ugh from the crowd. <laughs> And is the and is less true in his earlier stuff. Sports night that dynamic isn't totally in. Place Not quite there. Yet. It's close, but it's. I think you can. It, it correlates with the amount of creative control he has over whatever the project. Yeah. Is. Well, and I also think it, sports night the jokes were just better. So maybe you didn't notice it as much. Right, and this is sort of key to the trouble of the toxic guy you identify with, right? right? Yeah. Which is that you can, in one moment, think, "Wow." That guy is incredibly mean, and it is awful that he gets to just like use everyone around him as the demonstration of how correct he is. And <laughs> at the same time, he speaks with a fast patter, and I really <laughs> pleases pleases my ear as, yeah. it, as it enters my brainstem. It's like a it's like a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, you could say. Exactly, uh. and like just because just because the the. Uh, ego is obnoxious doesn't mean the jokes are bad right. and so mm. you and you get into this place where you want to convince yourself that that's a reasonable way to relate to the people around you like what if I just used my intelligence as a cudgel in my regular life what if yeah so that's so that's Aaron Sorkin right number four on the list uh, for me is Ender from the Ender's Game series by Orson Scott Card I won't talk about Orson Scott Card because I hate that dude um <laughs> But Ender is a real problematic, toxic man, uh, even though he starts as a boy in that first book. Um, just a little boy. Um, he is a third child like me. He went to a special school. Like, I went into a gifted program, and you're told you're so smart and special. And then you, like, realize that you actually have to learn emotional skills and that not everyone else feels the same way that you do. Um, I didn't have to kill anyone like Ender did. But well, Ender didn't choose to kill people. He just accidentally was tricked in a game yes. into killing them. And then, like, afterwards, he, like, founded a religion about himself, <laughs> about him having the audacity to speak for other people's and lives wait, wait, after wait, wait. they died. And you relate to this person? I just... No, okay, here's where here's how I relate to Ender, um, is that, like, it's the the ultimate weapon that unlocks the success of, of him as a commander is, like, empathy and love. Mm. And oh, I so strongly, like you. I, I thank you, Margaret. And I so strongly <laughs> identify with the like the double-edged sword that that book, uh, you know, wields as like, what is it to love something so much that you can destroy it, uh, and only learn that you wish you hadn't until after you did. Nice and men syndrome. Yeah. Um, and so. Then he goes on to like, he becomes an older dude and he like goes down to like some cult colonizer nonsense on a planet with a bunch of cool pig aliens. And he's <laughs> a man like, he's a toxic dude who left his whole planet behind. Um, that's number four. Yeah. What's five? Well, five is back to me and incidentally back to our larger discussion because five is Rob Fleming himself. Sure. Um, Rob Fleming is a character type that I would like to call the Lorelei Gilmore. And that is a 30-something who, when you are 16, seems like the coolest person in the entire world. You're like, when I'm 30-something, that's exactly the kind of grown-up I'm going to be. And then when you read it and you are 30-something, in my case, 
34, two years younger than Rob Fleming, protagonist of Nick Hornby's High Fidelity, four years older than Rob Robin Fleming, protagonist of the recent TV adaptation. You're like, wow, that person's a monster. <laughs> that person is garbage, and I would want them as far away from me as humanly possible. Um, so listening to the book again this week, uh, it's striking how much maleness is central to Rob's understanding of himself and Rob's understanding of how he came to be the kind of person that he is. And that was really interesting to me because that should have alienated me from identifying with him because there's so much of the book that seems to imply that as a woman, it would be impossible for me to exist and have the same kind of obsessive, toxic relationship with taste that Rob does, where you really do think that what you like is this important moral signifier to the people around you. It is this important thing that communicates more effectively than anything else you could do yeah. the true caliber of person you are. Aaron Sorkin would call it a shibboleth. <laughs> Aaron Sorkin would call it a shibboleth. <laughs> um, and uh, that was something I fully believed at 16 and now at 34 I'm finally getting out from the under out from under that misapprehension um I, did you have a passage that well you there's wanted a passage about the about the record store go that for I it think yeah that will demonstrate I think some of the uh alienating presumptions of maleness that nevertheless did not keep me out <laughs> Ooh, Craig, I took a nap earlier today, a sick nap. Mm, and yeah, you know, you take, take a, a sick nap, nap. Take a, well, yeah, a sick nap, and then you wake up and your mouth tastes bad. Yeah, nap mouth. It's a real nap problem. <laughs> I had that, but then you know how I got rid of it? Mints? Well, no, it was with my Quip toothbrush. Delicious. Try a little bit harder next time. Quip is a company that makes toothbrushes, and they say that if you have good habits, like brushing after napping, you are good. Vis-a-vis toothbrushing, that specifically means brushing for two minutes, twice a day, or more than that if you take a stinky nap, and flossing regularly. Quip makes that simple, starting with an electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and anti-cavity toothpaste. Quip's electric brush has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to guide a full and even clean. The Quip floss dispenser comes with pre-marked string to help you use just enough, not too little, not too much. It's a good amount. And they deliver a fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills to your door every three months with free shipping, so your routine is always right. Craig, if this sounds good to you, it does. go to get... Okay, good. I'm glad that you weighed in there. Go to getquip.com slash overdue right now, and you'll get your first refill for free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash overdue, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash overdue. Quip, the good habits company. So as I said, Rob runs this championship vinyl store. Um, he says, I get by because it's like in trouble all the time. Um, I get by because of the people who make a special effort to shop here Saturdays. Young men, always young men, with John Lennon specs and leather jackets and armfuls of square carrier bags. And because of the mail order, uh, I advertise in the back of the glossy rock magazines and get letters from young men, always young men, in Manchester and Glasgow and Ottawa. Young men who seem to spend a disproportionate amount of their time looking for deleted Smiths singles and original, not re-released, underlined Frank Zappa 
Zappa albums. They're as close to being mad as makes no difference. Um, and I think I was trying to find the other passage in the book, but maybe it was just a thing that Hornby said in an interview. But he attributes the the fascination with cataloging taste as like he is exploring it as a, as a male impulse of like controlling and and investigating your emotional response to things. Um, he goes on long riffs in the book about uh, Rob does about like listening to so many breakup songs that like you leave yourself more vulnerable to future breakups. Yeah, the question is, uh, which came first, the music or the misery? Yes, and it just seems like someone who isn't quite equipped to just think about his misery, and so he's gonna <laughs> yeah. like come up with a top five list of songs that make him most miserable, as opposed to like look around his life and look at what is actually making him yeah, miserable. Yeah, look at his life and look at his choices. Yes. The uh, other thing in that passage that we should probably call attention to with uh, you know, in reference to book Rob specifically, yeah, 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 is it how strongly and specifically held his like musical opinions <laughs> are, which is I think a, a thing that Hornby does as well. This is an interview that he did um, with Terry Gross for NPR, um, talking about the band Simple Minds. They were number one in our top five bands or musicians who will have to be shot come the musical revolution, which seems a little extreme, uh, but okay. Uh, Michael Bolton, U two, Brian Adams, and surprise, surprise, Genesis were tucked in behind them. Yeah, and, and I I think once I judged people who listened to music I didn't like that much, but now that I'm 34 years old, I just if you listen to YouTube and you like it, that's fine, I guess. Like I don't have any stakes. <laughs> I don't have any, I don't have any dogs in that fight anymore. <laughs> the uh, other Oh, go ahead, Margaret. No, you go ahead, babe. Okay. The other thing that is like, thanks, Margaret. Um <laughs> part of Rob's musical like the impulse of playlist and specifically in the book mixtape making um which we'll talk about in the show because we'll get to the versus television part of this conversation soon i think um the like impulse to make playlists for someone to tell them a story and to put them on some sort of specific emotional roller coaster he's got very specific rules um and in that uh, Fresh Air interview, uh, Terry Gross says something to the effect of, I always found the male impulse to tutor their girlfriends annoying. <laughs> and she seems really mad about it. And and Nick Hornby just goes, I guess that would be annoying. <laughs> and I think he knows that he is exploring it in a way that he is exploring the extreme of it with Rob. Um, and I, it, it's an interesting book to read uh, kind of a dirtbag character and like mm. think about how much Hornby wants you to see yourself in them as we've identified with toxic dudes um, and then go, okay, well, where am I not like that? And where am I too much like that? Right. And just like the delicate art of how you can embed yourself so completely in a perspective that it becomes intensely persuasive and enveloping. And, and you don't necessarily see that the narrative isn't, aiming itself for you you just identify with rob but there's still space to see that rob is a is a jerk like it's not an accident yeah. that i perceive that about him uh it is it is deliberate and artfully included and that was sort of something that we wanted to address but i also think to touch on the tv show that one of the things that is so remarkable about the adaptation is it validates the relationship that I had with Rob Fleming. Whereas even though the book, which was written in, I think, 1995? 1995. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though the book seems to imagine that 
a, a woman who would be interested in tutoring her boyfriends in their musical taste could not possibly exist. <laughs> and here I am, <laughs> <laughs> evidence to the contrary. Um, the show demonstrates that these things that are presented as exclusively male are actually ways that any person can be dumb and emotionally Catherine, messed up. That's an interesting, I just wanted, there, there was an interview that Hornby did with the, with Rolling Stone about the show specifically, and there was a quote that ended it that I, that I thought was interesting from this perspective yeah, yeah, of what yeah. we're talking about. Uh, he says, I don't think anyone who has read and loved the book and or seen and loved the movie could be disappointed with the series. I couldn't be more proud of the show. And if I catch anyone saying it's self-consciously woke, what with its gender reversals and its inclusion of more than one race slash sexuality, I will come round to your house and put you back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> because guess what? High fidelity isn't just about you. It's about people who aren't like you, too. Mm. Ah. Interesting. Catherine, you want to give us a, like a rundown of the setup of the show sure. and kind of point us in the directions where it's diverting from yeah. what we've said is already in the book? Sure. So the show is, stars Zoe Kravitz, who uh, is the real-life daughter of Lisa Bonet, who is in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and Zoe Kravitz is also Lenny Kravitz's daughter, and so she has a, a ton of music as just part of who she is and always loved the novel. Um, and I think in the same way that Margaret and I really loved the original text is this proof of like, oh, what if women also really identified with this extremely male character and you tried to figure out what this text could, could speak, how it could speak to you and has always wanted to be a part of it. Um, she actually, after she was involved, then got Hornby back involved in the process of making the TV show. So there are a lot of updated lines in the show that feel, I remember watching it and thinking like, wow, these are brand new lines of dialogue and yet they feel as though they could have come from the book and Hornby wrote a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. So that is part of why it works so well. Also, if you know the movie at all, the show is almost uncannily like it. Mm. There are scenes and bits of dialogue and setups and just recreated emotional experiences that feel just remarkably close to the sensation of watching that movie. And it is a way, among other things, it gives you this warm sense of like, yes, this thing that I love is still this thing that I love. But it becomes like a white balance against (laughs) the background so that you can see the difference more strongly. So that now that you have a a female protagonist... Right. Now that it's a female protagonist sitting in her bedroom having a conversation with Debbie Harry... Yeah. uh, uh, Well... Heart of Glass plays in the background. Yeah. You you can sit there and be like, oh, wow, this is exactly the same as when a white dude sat here and talked with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> but it's also, <laughs> it's different. Completely different. And not just a woman, but a person of color. And so all of the dynamics of being somebody who seems to resent having to prove their taste as valid Mm. resonate in a completely different way coming from this kind of person. I think one thing that the TV show does that really demonstrates how amazing TV can be that the the, the book... (laughs) the book and the film really don't have the mechanism for is that in episode eight, um, one of the minor characters... One of the folks who works in the record store, right? Yeah, and, and not a minor character, but just not the protagonist. Yeah, one of the minor characters in the show, his name is Simon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
your contribution is not needed right here, Margaret. Thank you. Thanks for trying. Great. Tipu's tiger just just jumped on me, devoured me. Um, he gets his own episode. He is the narrator of that episode. And it happens, you realize that it is a story that has actually been happening simultaneously with the, what with Rob's, the story that she has been telling this whole time. And it is a proof of Rob's single-minded, her complete egocentric view of the world that we had no idea that this other character had this happening in his life. Um, the TV show can contain it within an episode where you don't feel like you are being pulled away from Rob as a character yeah, because yeah, we all yeah. understand that TV has this capacity to do a little standalone episode and you can just do that little thing and then come back without spoiling some you know bigger arc of the season. Um, and it is this just fantastic backhanded demonstration of all of these things that Rob can't tell us directly about herself. Yeah, it's a li very limited perspective. Because she is, she speaks directly to the camera in the TV show, the character does in the movie as well, and then it's such a voicey first-person narrator in the book yep. that you are only, you are caught in that totally unreliable narrator. And so the TV show has this opportunity to be like, pause for a moment. What if we had a completely different teller of this story? Um, yeah, just I think one of my very favorite things about what this adaptation figured out how to do. Yeah, the adaptation in and of itself is an argument for the multiplicity of perspectives that exist in the real world, right? Because by taking a story centered on a, an aggressively straight, aggressively white, and aggressively male protagonist and shifting that so seamlessly onto a person who shares so few of those uh, superficial identifiers, mm. but it's capable of having exactly the same trash emotional journey. <laughs> um, you're making an argument, this story is more applicable than it seemed to originally understand itself to be. And then within that, it's making an even bigger argument, right? Which is like, this single-minded narration is arguably happening inside the mind of every single person here. Um, uh, I'm not going to go into the pier glass from Middlemarch, but like, I just need, need to cite that it is a thing that I am thinking about. And if you want to know what that means, if you're here, please find me afterwards. If you're listening, not at home, wherever you might be listening, you can just at me on Twitter. I think a show at Kenyon is maybe the only place we've been where you can pander to the audience by referencing Middlemarch. I know. That's why I feel so at home Very here. Very highbrow, yeah. Um, so can I read a passage that please. is... Please. It's one of the passages that I like. Rob does this thing in the book repeatedly where I'm like, oh, that's a cool, that's an interesting point. And what an interesting observation. I think it still reveals you as kind of a jerk. But like the insight is yeah. fascinating. Two things can be true. Yeah, weird. Um, so I'm just going to read it out loud and see if you guys, especially as women who related to the novel or the three of you have watched more of the show than I have. Um, he's talking about not... Uh, being with the people he was with when he was with Laura, like her circle of friends, um, and feeling more isolated. It's supposed to be women who allow themselves to become isolated by relationships. They end up seeing more of the guy's friends and doing more of the guy's things. Poor Anna trying to remember who Richard Thompson is and being shown the error of her simple-minded ways. Uh, simple-minded caps, because it's a band. Um, and when they're ditched, or when they ditch, they find their 
they floated far uh, too far away from friends they last saw properly three or four years before. And before Laura, that was what life was like for me and my partners too, most of them. But Laura, I don't know what happened. I liked her crowd. And he goes on to find himself in that role in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's I found myself thinking back on relationships I've been in, um, even like friendships I've had even here at Kenyon, where it's like, who is here because that person's here? Um, does that resonate? Did that resonate to you in your original hearing of the story? And is it something that you feel is at play in the TV show at all? So one of the weird things about watching the show now for me is I don't I don't live in Brooklyn. I don't spend a lot of time in Brooklyn. But like <laughs> Brooklyn is a place that sort of lives in the cultural imaginary in a much more real way for me than it would have um, when the, the American version of this movie came out. Yeah. Which Midwest Represent was set in Chicago. <laughs> yes. But um, I didn't have any idea of what an ur- I had never lived in an urban space like that or really spent much time there. And so you get that you're like she goes to brunch. It's her brother. You get the sort of employees. Um, and the world feels, I I think, pl- it is her world. Yeah. And the exes feel like they are they are these corollaries, these sort of sidebars that they almost live like like imaginary friends in her mind. Yeah. Um, and they're not as real as the people that are around her, which I think is a really interesting way of thinking about romantic relationships as um, these threads to other versions of yourself but they don't actually have a lot of real representation in the the life that you look oh, around sure. and see. Yeah. I think that is the structure that I thought was that felt plausible to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and or anything about the like web of relationships and or its setting in Brooklyn. You've lived in near New York. <laughs> um Anything in the show? New York do not consider Jersey City to be New York. No, I'm just being charitable. Um, (laughs) Anything in because I think the most you've spent with this story is with the show itself. So anything else from the setting that you want to shout out? I mean, (laughs) it is fully implausible that anybody (laughs) in the year 2020 would be able to keep a record store that nobody shops at. Open, <laughs> yeah, or that a record store in Brooklyn would have one Yelp review, right? Yeah. Or three employees who were all in the shop simultaneously all the time, all the time, time. and have no side gigs. They yeah. don't drive Ubers. They don't task grab it. There anything. is a side gig that we defined later. Well, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. it's it, they don't. It seems to be about their art right, and their, right. their pursuits, and not about like making there rent, are, which is all every young person I know. There are is other concerned remnant, about. yeah, remnant things about Rob as a character that you can see little bits of and you think eh, like a, a person who is 30 who lives in Brooklyn who doesn't know what a blue verified check mark next to a social media account means like I mean, these sorts it's of not plausible not plausible yeah the, if you are a <laughs> if you are a young person and you have ever looked up an ex's new partner online right and you're like scrolling through their Instagram and you're like there are no pictures of them it's like honey the the tagged tab is right there. That's where you find the pictures of the person's face. <laughs> we all know it. We've all stalked potential partners that way. Sure. Right? Sure. It's, just, it's just a weird universe where it's the the show is glad that CDs are dead, but <laughs> it won't acknowledge the existence of like iTunes or Spotify. That's not quite true because they talk about making playlists instead of well, making Well, playlists are... Okay, sure. So, you know. Fine, that's fair. I guess. Yeah. There's that's like a, a sad moment where she like texts a playlist to yeah. her ex. Which is also wild because every other time all these 30-something characters are just like calling each other um, on the phone. That's <laughs> Leaving strange. each other no voicemail messages. Wild. 
Yeah, it's really weird to like be uh, so confronted with the immediate periodness of the show and also reading a book that is a period piece now, even though it wasn't when it was written, even though all these people are assessed with like 20 year old music. Like it's just, I don't know, generationally, it's an interesting text. Yeah. Um, Anything else we want to say about like what the book or the text in general is up to? Well, between its different mediums? Yeah, I think it would be absolutely criminal to talk about the adaptation of this show without talking about Divine Joy Randolph, yeah. sure. who plays Charisse. Um, in the in the movie, that character is played by Jack Black. And I remember watching that character and thinking, like, that is one of the most charismatic and distinctive performances. I, be- I believe that that person is that human being just completely embodied yeah. that role. And it was one of the things I was most worried about coming into the mm. TV show because I was very because other things have been changed, but that character how how can you possibly be that character but also a different version of it? And Divine Joy Randolph does the most unbelievable performance of uh, a woman of color who is somehow both Jack Black <laughs> and way better than Jack Black. Yeah. And that she, and similarly with the Rob character, being a, being a person of color who is a woman gives all of her, all of the kind of um, ways that she feels left out of society, the ways that she is lacking in connection, the ways that her taste is not validated, the, all of these mm. kinds of things have a totally different valence. Yep, absolutely. And yet, at the same, she is just so completely infectious. Right. The journey for both characters, for both Barry, the the white male character as envisioned by the book and the movie, and Sharice, uh, is that it's this person who sort of has this incredible confidence and this really bombastic uh, understanding of themselves as a potential genius artist, but like won't create anything yeah. and seems p- paralyzed when it comes to the point of actually making art and putting it out there in the world. And obviously, you know, you can be a white person in the center of privilege, hi, and still feel totally alienated from creative pursuits and still feel that embarrassment that comes from knowing uh, this is an Ira Glass thing to just emphasize white and privileged, where your taste is better than what your output can be when you first start making art as Mm. a creative person. Mm -hmm. That dilemma is real and you can experience it no matter how profound your privilege might be, but to experience it so much more deeply when culture completely erases your ability to participate in that space. And one of the arcs that you find out Sharice is on is that she's decided she wants to transform herself as an artist and she's decided she wants to learn how to play guitar. And basically just her reclaiming her space in like a rock narrative mm-hmm. is it it has more different weight, it's nuance, very, and texture. And it's, it's very so cool. different from Barry from Barrytown, as Rob <laughs> calls him in the book, yeah. who is like joining a crappy, maybe their German techno band who knows what they're doing, and and then they're called Sonic Death Monkey, <laughs> and then they're like 
he joins it just because they need someone to sing, not because he's good. Yeah. And he gets ragged on for putting posters in the door. It yeah, it raises the stakes for that in a way. Sure. When I like Charisse's journey is really like resonant for me as a person who tried to play the guitar a bunch of times and didn't instantly get good at it and then quit. <laughs> Wild. Because Wild. it's much more it's much easier to be a potential musician than it is then to it is. be a musician. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I'm true. a phenomenally successful potential, potential musician. musician. <laughs> Potentially I could be great yeah. at so many things. Charisse <laughs> is also one of the strongest arguments that the show has for having a second season, which mm. is a kind of narrative tension that TV has that books don't have. Correct. And I think uh, without going into the details about how the first season of the TV show ends, in case I assume a lot of you have not seen it, um, a lot of doors are left open for it continuing, but there is no idea yet whether or not that will happen, although it has been fairly successful, and I think probably nobody needs to be super worried about that. <laughs> but the idea that Charisse could have an episode in the same way that Simon does is the thing that I want most. I was, I'm, season. especially with the way that, like, something like The Handmaid's Tale has gone, mm-hmm. with, like, how the later seasons have and have not riffed on the I did source not text. not know we were going to be bringing up a thing that made me mad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. Catherine, look at the poster, right? Behind us. Okay, it's um, designed to make you mad. Yeah, I know, I know. I was, I, I was interested when you mentioned that there maybe would be a second season. Having not watched the full season, I wasn't sure if they were going to close the loop yeah. on the narrative of the book because it does end in an unresolved, like a like maybe he'll become a better person now that he's learning to DJ again. <laughs> like maybe he'll be his best version. What of a him. dream! <laughs> maybe he'll be a better person now that he's gonna DJ again. Yeah. That is- hey, hey, he's he is DJing at a party for people who have kids and need to get home, and he doesn't feel bad about it. That's wow. he has grown as a wow, person. What a charitable gesture! <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, that's actually more advanced than Rob gets in the move in in the TV show. Yeah, yeah but so, but that, there is it, this opening for her to yeah. keep growing. You need her to. It right. sounds like we might not be able to resolve this debate using just high oh, fidelity. No. Oh no! I just had this idea right now. I didn't plan anything. A wild idea out Wait, of nowhere with no you, planning. To what debate are you referring? Uh. Novels versus television. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The name of the event, Catherine. Yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm with us now. Margaret, do you have any great ideas for what we could do to get us out of this dilemma? Well, I have a wild suggestion. Bear with me, guys. So, uh, as four notable alumnus of Kenyon College, we thought, you know what? There are some pretty nifty people who graduated from Kenyon who went on to do remarkable work in the fields of both television and novels. Wouldn't it be fascinating if we just debated them? Yes. One person was Team Kenyon Television. Hey! Yeah, that was a bad high five. That was, was a terrible really high five. Congratulations. A lot of <laughs> people saw that. <laughs> All time top five worst high fives. <laughs> Desert Island. And maybe another team could uh, dis- discuss Kenyan authors. Hey. Yeah, Way nice. to go for the fist bump. Yeah, safer. Lame. Safer. But the problem is there are four of us up here. You know, we're going to debate one thing. You guys are going to debate another. Who's going who's gonna to judge? Who's going to be the judge? We may have to invite a guest judge a to come down. A special guest judge to come down. Can please have our guest judge. <laughs> Welcome. Hey. Kenyan. Everybody give it up for President Shanti Cater. Margaret, do you want him in the center? Uh, yeah, we absolutely do want President Decatur in the center. Yes. Not only 
is he going to judge? But he, <laughs> Kate, who's been to some of our, who's listened to episodes of our live show before, knows that when we have a judge at our live shows, we also have a very important accessory, and that is a judge's wig. Please, <laughs> President Decatur. I'm, it's really hot. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's really hot and really bad. Uh, you know, I think they're... Really- Oh my god, similar, it looks so yeah. good on you. Yeah. Here, did we did we turn this microphone or all the it mics should be on? on. I'll, yeah. um, you can you can you can bring it right up to you. You gotta get right up on Margaret, top of it. Would you uh, please ask our judge to introduce himself for the Yeah, folks, for, the for the listeners folks at, at home. home. Yeah. I, I'm Sean Decatur. Ye- and am, you are? I am president of Canyon College. And, and, and I am a an extraordinarily <laughs> indulgent person. <laughs> and, and and I should say a huge fan of Aww. of podcasts and novels and television. So I feel so, like yeah. I am perhaps qualified to be a judge. <laughs> Amazing. So, Especially with the wig. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It lends um, a gravitas. So how we envision your role in this is uh we have each prepared three minute long arguments for our side. Um the 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 gentlemen of books are going to go first. <laughs> um, and after they have presented their argument, uh, you should feel free to ask them some follow-up questions to just elaborate on some of their points. If you really just have some zingers you want to sneak in there, if you see some yep. gaps in their logic, just n- nail them for it. And then we're going to go, yeah. and you won't have any follow-up questions. No, and- <laughs> our argument in favor of the television alumni of Kenyon is absolutely watertight and yeah. guaranteed to win. Yeah. So. And then, and then what is he judging? like? And then, with the help of audience applause, right. we are going to settle which team carries the day. The Kenyan alumni of television or the Kenyan alumni of books. Excellent. Yeah. All right, boys, you wanna get okay. you wanna you wanna sure. put some time so we, on the clock? Do you need any time? Do you need Greg's, to Greg's warm up? I've got it. I've time. got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, Do you just need to just just take some calming breaths so that the, the quavering stops? Yeah, books, stretches. Books, books, <laughs> books, 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 and go. Uh, so the first of the three alumni we want to talk about is Laura Hillenbrand. Uh, she was class of 89, uh, but had to drop out because of illness, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But she did receive an honorary degree in 2003. She's written two books. One is Sea Biscuit, an American Legend, which is about a good, good horse. Good, good horse. And the second is uh, is called Unbroken, and it's about uh, World War II. Uh, they were both they both spent months at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. They both Fine. became Just movies. Fine. Um, Glad that one of their three was a Toby McGuire. So she's two two books, two successes, two for two, one hundred percent. Okay. Um, and she's also um, on like a more serious note. She's spent her life uh, since she was a student at Kenyon battling uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And dealing with the social stigma of that and like doctors and friends and family members who don't understand what the diagnosis is. And, and you know, she has talked in interviews about people, you know, thinking she's faking it or just lazy. And, and so she's had to deal with both having a disease and having a lot of like a lot of sure. other sure. You know, hardships in her life. She's, over, she's yeah. overcome it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Next on our list, number two, Bill Watterson. Uh, dude made Calvin and Hobbes. Clap for Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, one of the most popular comics of all time. Um, and when he was asked to like sell out and monetize his creation, he stuck to his guns and said no. And then America said, we will make Calvin pee on things. Regardless. 
um, including the bumper of your car. Um, uh, things that you may remember from Calvin and Hobbes, iconic, you know, tropes and, and uh, things like the transmogrifier, uh, Spaceman Spiff, um, that episode where they go on a trip and they forget Hobbes and they go back and someone has broken into their house and Calvin is very worried. Um, uh, Calvin's dad is also an example of non-toxic daddom of all time. Uh, he believes in character building, but also loving his son. Yeah. Um, and in the Kenyan commencement speech that Watterson gave, he said, experience is food for the brain and four years at Kenyon is a rich meal. I suppose it should be no surprise that your brains will probably burp up Kenyon for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and our last author is John Green, class well, of... What? Zero, zero. I don't know how you'd say it. Class of 2000? Uh, class of 2000 is good. Uh, he was a double major in English and religious studies. Uh, give it up for the English major, everybody. Um, he wrote The Fault in Our Stars and Looking for Alaska, the latter of which became a TV show, so he does get double points. Truth. No, that's or not how he's this disqualified. Works. He gets double points. <laughs> that's not how this works. Um, along with his brother, Hank Green, he also invented YouTubing. And he did. He also invent <laughs> he invented the concept of a quirky young woman who changes a young man's life forever. <laughs> and that's time. Yeah. Thank All you. Right. Okay. Wow. That's, let's, let's hear it briefly for yes. Team Bucks. Yeah. <laughs> team Bucks who argued... For comic strip, but okay. Uh, or do we any questions? Yeah, follow your, up. Uh, your honor. So, if you actually could imagine a mashup between you know the the best of Hillenbrand, the best of Calvin and Hobbes, and the best Ooh. of John Green, what would it be? Probably a TV show. <laughs> I mean, I think it would be Calvin riding a horse <laughs> into a girl's heart. Yeah. <laughs> pretty good you guys what an image (laughs) would the girl's heart be big or would the horse be small magical realism (laughs) (laughs) i I like that you guys took the non-traditional route of not arguing for literally any of the many graduates of kenyan who won like a pulitzer easy pickings (laughs) we know about them they've got signs on walls and stuff (laughs) i guess this is what happens when you assign books to the two who didn't major in english correct (laughs) (laughs) okay should we do it i think we are gonna do it i don't have a timer in front of me i'm ready for you okay Okay, you're just gonna i'll be honest thank you and that's time thank you (laughs) (laughs) all right we're gonna go starting now i am Basically, your warm-up act, because Catherine Van Arendonk is a genius, and I don't want to get in her way. But what I want to put an argument forth for is two of our most recent prominent TV graduates, and that would be Josh Radner, who played Ted Mosby on How I Met Your Mother for many seasons on CBS, and the great Allison Janney, who played C.J. Craig on The West Wing, and that is where she sailed into all of our hearts with her impression of uh, the jackal, um, but also plays uh, and has won Emmy for her Emmys for her performance as Mom on the CBS sitcom Mom. Yeah, an extremely and, underrated sitcom, by the way. And what I want to say about both of these performances is that they use their particular Kenyan intelligence to subvert the intentions of the show. Ted Mosby is supposed to be a romantic hero, but Ted Mosby is walking garbage. Josh Radner, with his subtle performances and his keen intelligence, (laughs) the art that he honed here at this bastion of liberal arts, he shows that to you. Aaron Sorkin, famous misogynist, wrote the character of C.J. Craig, 
But CJ Craig is bigger than Aaron Sorkin. She's bigger than the West Wing. And that is why you can identify with her as an adult woman and not feel ashamed. It's yeah. because of the intelligence and verve with which Alice and Janney presented her. How much time I got left? Uh, one and a half minutes. Okay. Uh, Josh Radner is also in an upcoming uh, show on Prime called Hunters. He plays a, uh, it's a show about Nazi hunters, and he plays like a dirtbag washed up film star, which I think is extremely self-aware of him. Um, <laughs> the poor man Zach Braff, Josh our, Radner. Our, our third important ke- uh, Kenyan television alumni is a man named Jonathan Winters. If you do not know anything about him, he is an incredibly important and influential figure in early television history. He uh, started doing comedy, stand-up comedy at Kenyon in the 1950s and then moved from Dayton to New York. He told his wife he would be back if he couldn't make it work. He did make it work. Um, He was an absolutely... You could not avoid him on television in the 1950s. He was an important guest on a lot of the early late-night shows. He was the first... uh, color television video recording on was of him and he used it to make a stunt of himself where he played two different characters one of the first video stunts that ever existed um he was on the twilight zone he is the was the voice of papa smurf he invented (laughs) he invented a uh late night as he did like before, as late night was becoming a thing, he invented gonzo late night guesting, where he would show up as a different character on the Johnny Carson show, and Johnny Carson would have to interview him to try to figure out what his backstory was. I like books very much. We both do. But I don't think Kenyon has an alumni that invented books. And what I'm arguing... I think that's it. You got there. That's time. All right. <laughs> So imagine that this is a big block of cheese day yes. on, <laughs> on the West Wing. Fantastic. Sure. Uh, and uh, CJ goes into the you know the Roosevelt Room, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and both Jonathan Winters and Josh Radner are there. What are they pitching as the the project that they would like? CJ are they to pitching solve? A, a joint project or separate? Separate. <laughs> Uh, I think that they are, are pitching a road trip comedy where Josh Radner is a, a lovelorn young man, the toxicity of which is going to be revealed over the course of it. they're pitching separate projects. Oh, they're not pitching a project together? No, no, no. Well, Josh Radner is pitching that. Yeah. What happens is... <laughs> no, no, no. What happens is that Josh Radner walks in the room, sees Jonathan Winter there, is, and then they, they develop this project together. There we go. Yeah, it's a buddy road comedy. Right, but Jonathan Winters is a different character in every single episode, a yes. different hitchhiker. Yeah. Okay. And it gives him a chance to show off his range and do really cool camera tricks in color and black and white both. And obviously she funds it immediately. Yeah, because CJ is a smart woman. Yeah. Our answer was shorter than theirs. <laughs> Give them a round Brevity of is not always a soul of wit. <laughs> We're gonna have to ask you to make a ruling. Okay. Well. Well, I think can I can I ask for another round? Yes. Uh, oh so. yeah, absolutely. So novels, books. Listen to that sedate but respectable showing. Yeah. You're Television. insufferable. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I think yeah, it's no, pretty I clear. <laughs> We will uh, see you in appeals court, I guess. <laughs> Even uh, an amateur applause meter, I think, <laughs> could, could measure this one. Sorry. Television's got it. I don't know anything. Don't.
No, it's fine. Okay. Um, Go ahead, Margaret. And with that, that is the close of our show. Please, everyone, give it up for President Sean Decatur for being so game and sitting here in this terrible, extremely hot wig for so long. Please, please feel free to remove it. That was a HeadGum Podcast.